Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. I want to say, like your history professor, I don't want to be controversial. I don't like to fight. Uh, I just want to preach the word. So let's pray together as we do that. Father, thanks for this morning. Thank you that we have the rare privilege of gathering together three times a week to be exposed to your word preached, as well as to be a part of some classes where your word is proclaimed in every facet of life. We thank you for that privilege. We ask that we would never take advantage of it. We ask now you'd give us teachable hearts. You would convict us, that you would move us and change us so that we might please you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read for you one of the saddest stories I know. Because when it comes to relationships, I believe that most of us are not like the cherub, but we're like the tarantula. And I'd like to tell you the story of the tarantula. See, in California, tarantulas come out every fall. And they come out in such a way that people notice them. They're hideous, hairy spiders that swarm everywhere. And on certain roads, a driver can't help but driving along and squashing them and squishing them under their tires. Housewives armed with brooms and shovels smash them and beat them to death. Everyone reviles them, but they still come out every fall, swarming by the millions. Now, if that sounds like more like a horror story than a love story, it's because you don't know much about tarantulas. Tarantulas really don't live up to their fierce image. They actually uh, would rather hide under a bush than jump out and bite you. Their bite is not particularly poisonous, and they are solitary, oversized, ungainly creatures so heavy that when you drop them, they'll even break their own leg. They're friendly, they make good pets, and will even take to be walked on a leash. And they are virtually blind. So how does the poor blind spider living a solitary life under a pile of bush find a mate? The answer, apparently, is that some autumn instinct sends them wandering haplessly over the environment, over the countryside, and bumping into everything in its past, risking terrified housewives and speeding cars until it bumps into a tarantula of the opposite sex. Without much vision and without any extraordinary powers of hearing or scent, he is to establish contact by touch. So it's really only by accident that two tarantulas find each other. In fact, there are so many tarantulas that they try so desperately to keep tarantulas uh, intact that the race doesn't die out because they run all over the place trying to find other tarantulas. But most tarantulas, unfortunately, never find a suitable love at all. They go around bumping across the landscape until they find their doom or the end of their forlorn days. Now, what this writer goes on to say is that they're not so much different than us. Perhaps the tarantula rather than the cherub should be the symbol of romantic love for us human beings. Most of us look desperately for love. We don't know how to look. Our senses don't lead us very well, so we wander across the landscape hoping to bump into it. Many take risks, and the losers are strewn everywhere. We take many risks, but there's no time for pity. We keep rushing along, bumping into people, hoping to find the right mate. Some of us succeed, but a large proportion never do, and their corpses are laid everywhere. That's why we've been looking at the book of Titus and the role of women, and then later the role of men. And I'd like you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. I think the thing that most grieves me is that when you talk about the role of women and you talk about the role of men, the people think you're talking out of the side of your mouth. 
And the thing that I want you to know is I don't want to give you my opinion. I'm not interested in telling you what I think because most of the things that I think would probably offend most of you anyway. I want to tell you what God thinks and then allow you to chew and debate and struggle with him. And I'm aware that some of you, especially some of you gals, struggle with some of the things that we talked about on Wednesday. And that's okay. I'm glad. I think it's good for you to struggle. It's not good for you to struggle with me. It's good for you to struggle with God. But I want to help you in that process. And if you don't have a class after this chapel, I'd like to take the time to ask all the men to leave. And those of you gals who do not have a class, who would like to stay for a question and answer time, I'd like to be available for that. And then next time when I come after uh, next week, I won't be here next week, uh, I'd like to take even a lunchtime. And those of you gals who are interested in that, I'd like to just take some Q&A and dialogue through these things and show you the passages that you may need to kind of treasure or show you the passages that maybe you haven't really worked through yet and to go through some things together with you. If you're interested in that, if you're not, that's fine. But if you are interested in allowing God to change your heart, I'd be really open for that. Take a look at the book of Titus. You got to understand, let's set the stage for where Titus is coming from. First of all, you need to recognize that this is after his first imprisonment. And uh, he has left Titus on the island of Crete basically to set things in order. And one of the things that he has to set in order is basically to establish the relationship, the role relationships. And so he talks about the different various groups in the church and their role and their function. What Paul has basically done for us at the same time is to describe the role of the women and the role of the man and the character qualities that are typical of the young man and typical of the young woman. So take a look at verse 4 and 5, and it says that the older women are to train the younger women that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. See, the issue here is the word of God. The issue here is God's honor. The issue is not a cultural mandate or what one man thinks. The issue is God. And the main issue that Titus is dealing with on Crete is that the Christians were having a hard time putting their beliefs into behavior. They were having a hard time living out what God wanted them to do. And so Paul describes here in Titus 2 the seven essential character qualities that women are to do. First they are to be and then they live these out in their lifestyle. And though it's written to a specific age group and sex, I think there's something here for everybody. I mean, if you're an older woman, these are the qualities that you have supposedly already mastered and are modeling now for the younger women that you come exposed to. If you're a single woman, which most of you are, these are the qualities that you are to begin to manifest so that you might model the lifestyle and priorities that God has designed for you. And of course, the thing that you need to be prepared for is what God is heading you for, which is marriage for more than 90% of you. If you're an older man and a married man, these are the qualities that you want to esteem in your wife and encourage from your daughter. And if you're a single man, this is the kind of woman to look for, guys. This is the ultimate woman, according to God, the Chuki Lala woman. So what are these qualities? Here they are again. Look at them. Maritally, she is to love her husband. Maternally, she is to love her children. Mentally, she is to be sensible. And that's as far as we'll get this morning. Morally, she is to be pure. Domestically, she is to be a worker at home. Socially, she is to be kind. And spiritually, she is to be subject to her husband so that the word of God is not dishonored. Now, let's take a look at maritally. She is to love her husband. 
When Paul says this to Titus, he knows that on Crete there are basically two kinds of marriages. The first one was arranged for political or family reasons, something that they didn't have a choice over. And there were also those uh, marriage relationships that were for men simply for the procreation of male offspring. And in light of that culture, even an exhortation to a Christian woman to love her husband is not an easy task. But Paul takes it even a step further. What he basically says is that the first duty of a Christian woman is to love her husband. But the love is more than just a duty, more than just a choice. One of the greatest hindrances in the marriage relationship today between a husband and a wife is that the wife says, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. And yet their marriage is in shambles. And the issue is not just doing what you're supposed to do, but also having a heart that's involved in that process. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to Titus. You see, the word for loving husbands here does not come from agape, but phileo. See, the type of love talked about here is not the total unselfish giving of oneself to another, whether you feel like it or not. The love that's talked about here that is addressed here is the love that cherishes another. The love that that has a tender affection for another. It's the love of emotion, the love of relationship, comradeship, sharing and friendship. It's the love that cherishes the mate. Phileo. You see, God's goal for the young woman is to have a love for her husband that is more than external obedience. It's more than just doing what you're supposed to do. It's more than doing all that's required, but it's the wife is to like, cherish, share and be friends with her husband. Now, that wasn't easy in Titus's day, and it's certainly not easy today. That's why the young woman must be trained to catch that by the older woman on how to love her husband. Now, I know it may be hard to to believe, but my wife, Jean, sometimes has a hard time loving me. I, I know that may shock you, but it's true. I mean, after a hard day and I come home and I preconceived in my mind that I'm going to place my coat on the chair. I put my shoes in the living room. I throw off my pants and put on my sweats in the bedroom. And I kind of lay them in nice, neat piles all around the house because I know where they're going to be and I know where to find them. And you know what she does? She hides them. She puts them in the hamper. She puts them on the hanger in the closet where she knows I can't find them. You see, the issue you've got to deal with is that, men, you've got to realize the fact that it's not always going to be easy for your future wife to love you. And women, it's not going to always be easy and the easiest thing for you to love your man. But by the Spirit of God and through the Word of God, it can be done. It can be done. What are some of the ways that women are to love their husbands? Let me give you a few that are found in Scripture. One is that she loves her husband by having a good reputation. A good reputation. Proverbs 31:23 tells us that her reputation is so good that her husband is known by the leading citizens in her community because of her blameless walk and a life of good works. Now, I really believe it should be your goal, ladies, to begin to cultivate a good reputation now. Because for what you may not realize is that a great deal of your influence upon your man-to-be and a great deal of influence as far as to begin to... Be esteemed by the man who will be your future husband is your reputation. I mean, if you've ever read the ultimate love story in the Old Testament, a story of Ruth and Boaz, you'll recognize the fact that before Boaz ever laid eyes on Ruth, he heard about her incredible reputation. 
I want you to know that even with my own wife, I had heard about her six to eight months before I even met her. And I was impressed. All I heard about her was what an incredible godly woman that she was. What an incredible woman who understood the ministry, who understood the priorities of the home and family, who understood all those God-given designs for the woman. Now, when I met her, I almost worshipped her. I was just totally in awe about what an incredible woman this must be. And to a great degree, that's what won my heart for her. As I saw that it was true. Reputation is very important. Another way that she can love her husband is by having a godly appearance, which according to first Peter chapter three is not externally gaudy, nor does it attract overt attention to her physical presence. But first Timothy two says that her appearance is orderly, well-kept, modest and dignified. Another way that she can love her husband and even prepare to begin to develop that type of love for her husband is by being reverent, reverent. A woman is described in Titus 2 and 1 Timothy 3 as being respectful and sober, manifesting an attitude of trust and respect, not only towards God, but also towards all authority. And finally... A woman can love her husband by being self-controlled. And again, in Titus 2, it describes the ultimate woman as one who has her will in subjection to the word of God. And as a result, she controls her tongue. Think about that, ladies. Her desires. She controls her emotions and her life to such a degree that she is characterized by these terms. Diligence, industriousness, efficiency, and organization. Is that you? Are those the priorities that you are cultivating in your life? Now, why would a woman pursue all that? So she can learn to love her husband. So she can learn to love her husband, to communicate trust, to promote interaction, to demonstrate love and respect, and create an environment for phileo love to begin to be manifested. Unfortunately, what usually takes place is that relationships start out great, but then they degenerate. Things may start out blissfully in the first year of marriage, but unless a woman learns to love her husband like Paul exhorts her to, it may end up in blisters. Much like the progression seen in an article that was carried in the Saturday Evening Post that was called The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. And this article revealed the reactions of a husband to his wife's colds during the first seven years of their marriage relationship. And it went something like this. The first year. Sugar Dumplin', I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling what these things with all this strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'll be bringing your meals from Rosini's. I've already got it all arranged with the floor superintendent. The second year of marriage. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called Doc Miller and asked him to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl, please, just for Papa. The third year. Maybe you better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll, I'll bring you something. Do, do we have any canned soup? The fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the kids and washed the dishes and finished the floors, you better lie down. The fifth year. Why don't you take a couple aspirin? The sixth year. I wish you'd just gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. The seventh year, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. You're trying to give me pneumonia or something? 
Now, just for a moment, let's be practical. How can one apply the exhortation to love their husbands now as a single woman? For you single women, let me give you some ideas. Never pursue a close relationship with a young man unless he is a Christian and also a spiritual, spirit-filled, godly, mature, and biblically sound man. You know, so few really live this out, but I believe a key for you gals is to never become intimate with an individual, and I mean intimate meaning more than just a date. Never become intimate with an individual that you can't marry. Why would you want to build a one union relationship with someone that that you're going to have to rip away from because you recognize that he's not the man that he should be? Here's another suggestion. Feelings are not the basis of any relationship, but will result from a right commitment. In other words, feelings are not a proper indicator of whether you've got the right man or not. The word of God and spiritual, older, spiritual women who are watching you can be a helpful indicator as well as the word of God and the qualities that are found there. Not your own heart. You see, your heart is desperately wicked, is it not? Who can really know it? Can you really trust your heart as a Christian? I don't believe so. Therefore, you're crazy to jump into a relationship without really being a friend, which, by the way, takes more than just a couple months. Again, like I said last time, it it amazes me how many gals get into relationships with guys and then they try and roll backwards saying, we're friends, we're friends, we're friends. They don't even know who they are, but they keep telling themselves how special friends they are. But it's just the rush of an emotional high. It's not a, a friendship based on trust, based on respect, which takes time. Also remember that feelings are going to leave in any relationship and they will leave. I guarantee you, your future husband or your future wife, you will stop feeling love for them. And there isn't a married couple in this room that knows that that's not true. I mean, there will be mornings that you'll wake up and you'll go, oh man, what am I doing here? You will. But by the Spirit of God, you can also reestablish those relationships and those feelings. See, marriage counselors tell us that idealism is assassinated in the first year of marriage. But that's not the basis of commitment. The basis of commitment is Jesus Christ, the Word of God, not feelings, not emotional highs. Here's another suggestion. Training for the younger women is crucial. There are all kinds of books, seminars, principles, and truths, but unless you have an older woman to model it, you're really going to lack the practical wisdom that it takes to determine whether a man is right for you. And to really determine whether you're going to love properly. You know, I just want to share with you what the older women will do. An older woman will reveal the real. She'll not deal the ideal because it's caught not taught. That's exactly what she'll do. How about for you men? The right woman for you is the spiritual woman. One whose heart is given to living out biblical ideal, not necessarily that she lives out the ideal perfectly now, but she's progressing towards that ideal. She's progressing towards what God would have her to be. Another thing to think through is to notice that the ultimate woman is the one who is a woman of character, character, not charm, not beauty. Proverbs 31:30 states this. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. You know, as a Christian man, 
if your initial evaluation of a woman is based solely on her appearance, you have bought the most successful satanic lie of our age. You see, reserve judgment, man, until you find out the true person. There are some beauties and maybe even some beauties in this room that are very ugly inside. And there are some who may not have the model appearance and look like the 1% of our country that is flashed in all our magazines and billboards, but they're the true beauties inside. And I guarantee you, you're not marrying a body. You're marrying a person, a person. Something else to think through is the two key elements that must be found in every woman friend, and for you ladies, any man friend, is that those two qualities that are absolutely essential is one is trust and the other is respect. And if you can't trust someone, you won't love them. And if you can't respect someone, you won't love them either. Even though you may feel emotionally attached to them, you ultimately will not love them the way that God has designed love to be. And another suggestion is you'll never find the ultimate woman unless your priorities are right as well. Guys, you have to have your lives together because any woman worth her salt is not going to touch a guy who doesn't have his life in order. Number two. Maternally, the young woman is to love her children. Love her children. Next to loving her husband, the godly woman must love her kids. Which for most future mothers in this room would seem to be the easiest exhortation to live out. I mean, how can anyone not love kids? They're the most entertaining thing around. I mean, ultimately, what I've called my son over the last two years is the adult toy. Everybody ought to have one. He's fun. You know, take the six-year-old who for weeks kept telling his first grade teacher about his future brother or sister that they were expecting in their house. Then one day, his mother allowed him to feel the movements of the unborn child in her womb. And the six-year-old was obviously impressed, but he made no comment. And what was strange after that time is that he stopped telling his teacher about this upcoming event, this upcoming brother or sister. The teacher, curious about the change in the young boy, finally grabbed him and set him on her lap and said, Tommy, whatever has become of that baby brother or sister that you were expecting at your house? And Tommy then burst into tears and he said, I think mommy ate it. <laughs> You know, that's great. My wife and I, Wednesday night, we took Matt out for dinner and we didn't want him to have any hot sauce. We were in a Mexican restaurant and he was eating these chips and he wanted to dip it in the hot sauce like we were. And so my wife grabbed the chip and kind of dipped it in, but she really didn't dip it, you know. So he grabs the chip and he starts about to put it in his mouth and he starts looking at the chip and he goes, I can't find it on here. <laughs> can't pull anything over them anymore. <laughs> They're great. Kids are great. Yet at the same time, there's nothing more difficult than loving kids. I mean, think about it. Say you have three kids and they all wake up in a bad mood. And then one day they keep you up all night. And then in the morning, they accidentally each eat a dozen cookies each, whine all day, scream for things they don't want, refuse to eat any meal without severe complaint, exercise the arm on the stereo while a record is playing, use the other records as frisbees, throw a ball through the neighbor's window, torture the dog next door by covering it with scotch tape, eat the houseplants, and writing on the walls with a permanent marker. Now, the reason I share all these things with you is that between my family and another family, they have done all of those things. 
And after a day like that, a mother may not sense a great deal of love for her children. That's why it's not commanded in the scripture. (laughs) Now, you know, think about it for a second. You don't have to be a young kid to make it rough on your parents. Just uh, put yourself in the father's place of this conversation. The father says to his older son, why don't you get yourself a job? Son says, why? The father says, so you can earn some money. The son says, why? The father says, so you can put some money in the bank and, and, and earn interest. The son says, why? He says, so, so that when you're old and use the money in your bank account, you will never have to work again. The son says, I'm not working now. It can be tough to love your children. <laughs> Especially in light of the fact that the love that's talked about here is not agape again, it's phileo. It's the type of love that likes. It's the type of love that loves their children emotionally and has positive feelings. And that's why it's not commanded. He exhorts that the young women be trained by the older women to learn to love their children. The reason it's used, I believe, in the New Testament world, there would have to be a lot of attitudes that be overcome. You see, in the first century, raising children was a mother's duty by marriage arrangement. Not only that, but children were also a burden to a society where food was a precious commodity and that meant that more mouths would have to be fed. Not only that, but typically in the Greek and Roman society, people lacked natural affection to the point that weak, deformed, crippled, or even females that were born to a family other than the firstborn female were killed by exposure as a normal practice of life. Everybody did it. So they lacked a great deal of natural affection. But that's not much different than our day, right? I mean, don't we in our culture have 173 abortions every hour? As I speak, 173 children will be killed. Not only that, there'll be seven runaways every hour by willful beatings and burnings and starvation brought on by parents and guardians. Now, each of us should scream at that holocaust. But slowly and ever so deceptively, the lack of affection, the lack of phileo love has not only permeated the church, but also the Christian family and especially singles who are thinking about getting married. I mean, who needs kids anymore? A mother... By most women today, maybe not in this crowd, the role of a mother is viewed as being a duty to be performed rather than a pleasure to be desired. It's a duty, a pain. The world keeps telling us that the role of a mother is second best, and as a nation we believe it. 42%, that's almost half, of the children in our nation are being pushed off to the professionals at daycare centers. 42%. Or they're locked indoors all day so that mom can pursue some outside career. Now, it really grieves me to see mothers and fathers justifying daycare. There seems to be a mentality pervading our society which believes that children don't really need a mom and a dad. One fellow pastor shared with me that he was watching the Mike Douglas show. And there was a young actress on there plugging her recent movie that she starred in. And during her interview, she wanted to say something to her sick boy at home. And so she looked at the camera. She says, be a good mother to yourself. What a disaster. Add to that the daycare and latchkey abuses. 22% of our population are raised by one parent. 15% of our population of our children are born out of wedlock. And what that does is it adds up to a society that has no natural affection to our children. We live in that society today. Our society doesn't like children and they view the family as an inconvenience to quote higher priorities. And there's a real pressure. A real pressure on you men and women, on the collegian men and women of our society, especially the Christian ones, to pursue the American dream. 
I want you to understand something about the world that you live in. If you want a house and you want a car, you're both going to have to work. And if you both work, you can't raise your kids. can't do it the way that God designed it to be. You can't. So you've got to give up one thing. You've got to give up the American dream and say, even if we live on one salary and we don't live in the incredible mansion that I've always dreamed us living in, maybe we can have a God-ordained family and live out biblical priorities. That's the kind of guts it's going to have to take. Because your world and our whole society and our whole economic system in this country is bent on two incomes now. It's no wonder that a woman, Judge Beatrice Mullaney of Fall River, Massachusetts, affirm that women are almost entirely to blame for the lower moral standards in the United States. She said this, a woman. She says, women are anxious to exercise freedoms and permissiveness promoted by the women's movement. And the result is the disillusion of marriages, homes, and families. In nearly two decades as a judge, I've heard more than 10,000 divorce, separation, and custody cases. And I've seen moral decay, especially in family responsibilities. Divorce, permissiveness, and shrinking of duties. I blame women almost entirely for the lowering of moral standards of this country. That's an incredible statement coming from a woman. But before you women stone me, please note that men are responsible too. Men are selfish too. Recently, April 6, 1986, the Daily News read this, Childless couples are happier. The article read that married couples who choose not to have children are much more happy today, since children cost so much, and they restrict freedom. Now, even though there's truth in both of those statements, as Christians, we must recognize that God has created us for a different purpose. If you want to understand one of the purposes of marriage, Malachi 2.15 says that one of the purposes of marriage is to produce godly offspring. Men and women, we are to pass on our spiritual heritage to our children. One of your greatest influences, one of your greatest impact for for the kingdom of God will be in the lives of your children. If I fail to disciple my son and make him a man of God, I have failed in ministry. Let's not get caught up in the worldly pressure of locking our kids up or passing them off or avoiding them altogether. And especially the thought that a full-time mother is a second-best profession. The truth of the matter is that according to God's Word, being a full-time mother is the highest privilege of a woman and her greatest influence for the kingdom of God. And we've already taken note of that. 1 Timothy 2, verse 15 says that a woman shall be preserved through the bearing of children. And what Paul is saying here is that her greatest impact in the kingdom will be her influence in her children's lives. Her salvation will be her impact from the bottom up, not from the top down. The famous preacher, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, had four sons, and all of them became ministers. At a family reunion, a friend asked one of the sons, which of the Morgans is the greatest preacher Everyone stopped and stared to listen to his response. And he looked straight at his father and he said, Mother. And it was true. Her influence in their lives is what brought about them all being used so successfully in the kingdom of God. What should our response be? Let me give you some suggestions. First for you women, build a relationship with one or two or three families who have young children. Become a friend of the kids. For some, seek to be their favorite babysitter. 
Learn to recognize their strengths and weaknesses and know them and still like them anyway. One of the ways, again, and I, I don't want to beat this to death, but to be to get involved in a church. One of the ways that you're going to be most involved in families is to be a part of the body of Christ. Not just attend, but be intimately involved with other families. I've watched over the last year a couple of gals in our college group who were somewhat on the fringes, somewhat shy. As a matter of fact, the first time that one of them spoke to me, she trembled. She was so intimidated. And yet over the last year, I've watched them become incredible women of God to the point that lots of guys are beginning to take notice. And you know what? It was the lives of an older woman that began to pour herself into them that began to bring about all these changes. Here's another suggestion. Learn to express love to all children. Train yourself to brighten up when you see them. Give them attention even though all the grown-ups around them ignore them. Hug them. Learn how to play with kids. Another suggestion. Pray that God will assist you in learning how to appreciate, understand, honor, and look forward to the role of a mother. Enjoy it. One of our students in our college group is the editor of the Biola Chimes. I didn't mean to bring up um, Arrival. But the interesting thing is she wrote an editorial in there and she was being asked by some of her friends, what do you want to do with your life? And she had given the impression, because she's so successful and she's so good as an editor, that they all thought she was going to be some great publisher. And she says, you know what I'd like more than anything else? She goes, I want to be a wife and a mother. And they all were blown away. And she was proud to say it. And they began to ask her questions. Well, what are you doing in all this editorial work? What are you doing this for? She says, well, until the time that God brings that man along, I'm going to give myself and develop these skills. But when he brings him along, I'm going to give myself fully to that man and to the raising of children. And they couldn't believe it. And she wrote that in the paper and it blew him away. Viola needs that more than you folks. But it's something that we can all take note of. Another suggestion. Assist other women, whether you know them or not, in dealing with their children. Help them in times of distress. If you see a kid running rampant in a store, help the mother. She needs it. There aren't enough cookies in the world to keep some kids stationary. And when praying for your husband to be, don't just pray that he'll be a spirit-filled man and a godly man who will love you. Pray that he'll be a great father. For you men, stop being afraid of kids. Learn how to be around kids and love it. And the best way is to build a relationship with a family that has children and become the kid's favorite uncle or friend. May I suggest even that you would sometimes babysit on a Sunday in the toddler room. You'll never be the same. (laughs) Never belittle a woman for the attention she gives to children. As a matter of fact, you ought to praise God that sometimes she ignores you and pays attention to kids. When you pray for your wife to be, pray that she'll not only be a godly woman, but also an excellent mother, one who will influence your children to be like Jesus Christ. Esteem women highly, give them, excuse me, esteem children highly, give them the attention that they deserve, compliment them, play with them, and protect them from all harm. Protect them. View your relationship, even with kids you don't know, as a protector. And another suggestion, become the kind of man that children wish to follow and be like. Become someone's hero because that's what you want from your kids. Number three, the next goal of a young woman is to be mentally sensible. Mentally sensible. Basically, that means that she's in her right mind. She hasn't slipped a groove in the record of life. 
She's also temperate and discreet. She's also one who has common sense. And basically it means that she's a thinking woman. She's a thinking woman. What's incredible about this is it's the most repeated quality in the entire book of Titus. Sensibility. To be sober. To be sensible. And the Cretans were ones who had no sensibility. And that's why it's really encouraged on the part of the Cretans. They were always liars which means they didn't have any control over their speech. They were evil beasts, which means they manifested wild and unsensible behavior. They were lazy gluttons, it says in Titus 1. Literally lazy bellies showing no control over their appetites and desires, and they also didn't have any control with controlling what they believed. They listened to myths. And just like our society that says it can't be wrong because it feels so right, go for the gusto, let it all loose tonight, and you deserve a break today, our society has no sensibility. And in order to create a sensible life, you're going to have to go against the current and the tide of our society. I mean, Paul exhorts elders to be sensible, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and basically all believers to be sensible. Now, how can we do that? Basically affects every area of our lives, our emotions. Don't be like the angry woman who said to her husband, no, every time I've discussed something sensibly, I lose. Don't do that. Our driving habits. It should affect our spending habits. Don't be like the, the Teddy Roosevelt Christian who runs from store to store going, charge it. Think about it. I say that as a joke, but I want you to understand something. One of the greatest problems in marriage relationships today, in fact, the greatest reason for divorce is over the issue of money. And some of you are developing habits and patterns in your life right now that are going to cause you incredible grief in marriage. Learn to budget your money now. Learn to control it now. Learn to be sensible with how you spend. Also, learn to be sensible concerning the way that you talk and what you share with someone of the opposite sex. Like avoiding promises to each other that you can't fulfill outside of marriage. Like talking about marriage with someone you've only known for a couple of weeks. That's not doing her any good, guys. And gals, that's not doing him any good either. Or like saying, I love you, and not being able to back it up like Jesus Christ. If I could do one thing, and I know some of you will not like this, I would love to wipe out that, that phrase out of your vocabulary for the opposite sex until you know that that individual is to be your wife or your husband forever. Because as a Christian, I love you means a whole lot different than what the world says. See, when the world says it, it's just another cliche. When we say it as Christians, we represent Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ said, I love you, he said, I'll give you my life. You know, if you really want to say that you love you to someone, why don't you say, hey, I love you humanistically like the world does. But don't say it like a Christian. Because when a Christian says it, that means that means forever. And guys, you are defrauding women when you share that with them and you will not back it up by saying in the next sentence, will you marry me? You're defrauding them. The sensible woman also dresses sensibly. Be aware, women, that not only does your dress reveal your character, according to 1 Peter 3 and 1 Timothy 2, but it also sends some very loud and clear messages. The sensible woman becomes aware of not only her intended message for what she wears, but also the possible received messages from what she wears. The harsh reality of it is that there are certain clothes that you younger women wear intending to look attractive or for some to show off your figure or even to gain attention. 
because that's your intended message for some. But what's received is I'm a loose woman. The received message is I'm available for sexual promiscuity. The received message is, wouldn't you like to see me with less clothes on? It's true. KNX Radio reported after polling thousands of junior high boys concerning what they thought certain tight pants meant and the message that those particular clothes were sending, they all universally agreed that those type of clothes were sending the message that I'm ready for sexual promiscuity. All of them. And you know what? College guys aren't a whole lot different. Even Christian guys who are trying to control their thoughts. What kind of messages not only are you sending women, but what kind of messages are being received? Now, I'm not saying that you've got to walk around in a gunny sack, okay? And I'm not saying that there are some guys that no matter what you wear, they're going to see what they want to see. That's true. But at the same time, think about what you're wearing. Well, I think that's all we have time for this morning. And I hope and pray that as the Lord begins to move in your life, that some of these things will not only make you think, but also that God would then change your life. Can I make a challenge for you as we close? Just hang on for one second. I'd like to challenge some of you, and only a few of you will do this, a very few of you, but for some it's, it's good. That you would make covenants in writing. That you would make covenants in writing about the changes and the goals and the needed areas in which you need to progress. About even some lines that you need to draw by what you will say, what you will wear, what you, where you would draw the line in not only the physical relationship, but the social, spiritual, and other areas of relationship. Put that down on paper and then give it to somebody that you're afraid of. So they'll hold you accountable to it. I have ten sets of people who have done that. And you know what? Every single one of those couples have not failed in their covenants. Because they're afraid. That's a good motivation sometimes. For those of you who are gutsy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray, God, that you would help us to think through some of these issues. Father, there's so much that hasn't been said. There's so much of your word that needs to be brought forth. And I would pray that even in the lack of that, that you would begin to cause us to think some of these things through. Thank you for the privilege of changing our lives. Help us to begin to apply the truths that we know are right before you so that we might truly worship you. That we might be ones who would not think that just knowing things will change us, but that doing is a manifestation of true faith in you. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.